Church, if you remain standing as we read God's Word together this morning, we're going to be studying John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. And after they had rowed before, rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near to the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him in on the boat, on board, excuse me. And at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. This is the word of the Lord. So my notes have a lot of white space in them, filled in with lots of random thoughts, because as you can imagine with the weekend, lots of things I want to hopefully be able to minister to us well and think through the passing of Ivan and how we might grieve and also care for um, Sarah and Bennett in the days to come. And it just seems to me, and, and I said this in Sunday school, this text wasn't originally supposed to be for today, it was supposed to be uh, another couple weeks away, but we ended up reforming some sessions uh, a couple weeks ago to kind of get ready for the summer, and it just so happened that here we are, and it was, yeah, the Lord just knows what we need when we need it. So last week, well, let me just start here. My, my guess is, is that most of us came into the Christian life with, a, and I think we see this a lot in American evangelicalism, kind of a wide-eyed optimism. And what I mean by that is we kind of come into it thinking, okay, great, we, you know, we, we've, we've met Jesus, we've experienced him, and it can only get better from here. And then we find out all too quickly as we continue to travail the life that we have before us that it doesn't always get better from here, at least not yet. And, uh, and then we're faced with some, some really heart-piercing questions of what to do when we are faced with uh, or really fully thrust into the storms of this life. And as we saw last week, Christ calls his people onto this grand exodus adventure. That's what we see in the feeding of the 5,000. And as he does so, he's teaching us something about himself and about where our hearts should be formed in him. And we saw last week that he's the great provider for his people. And it's a wonderful picture of Jesus providing for this massive group. Some, it says 5,000, but that's 5,000 men. And, but really it's probably more like 20 to 25, maybe 30,000 people present. And Jesus has, it just, in a, just in an instant, provides for these people. And that sounds all good. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a happy moment. That's a feel-good moment. We're all, we're all walking around after the fellowship going, wow, look what God's doing, until you get in the boat. Until you are the ones who are closest to Jesus and he asks you to do things that seem extremely odd. And he asks you to do them without his presence, at least temporarily. And that's what we see here this morning. Because there will come a time, if you haven't already experienced them, or maybe you'll experience them multiple times in your life, depending on where, what the Lord has providentially ordered for your particular life, that we will have to look at this life, 
journey through this exodus with Christ as he's providing for his spiritually hungry people. And we need to ask really hard questions when we face these storms. Does this mean that we will always be in times of trouble? Does this mean that we will not, that we will, that somehow know that when we come to know Christ, that we're not going to struggle to follow Christ and God brings storms in our life to show us that we will struggle to follow Jesus? Does this mean that we will not, what would we do when we're in the middle of it? Are we, are we actually going to look for Jesus or are we going to look to our own means? Are we going to, because you know, that's what we do, right? We, we end up in these storms and we, and, and, and we kind of turn into triage moment. Got, got to fix it, got to fix it immediately. And, and, and if we're truthful with our own hearts and our own minds, like we are sometimes the last thing that we consider is God and Christ in the midst of these things. And, and these are questions that we must wrestle with because we will face storms. We are, some, we are facing a storm as a church, but we're also, we have a, a, a young mother and child who are facing an, an ex- extremely difficult one in our church. And so if you grew up in church, you, you're, you're familiar with this, this story that has probably been taught in every Sunday school class at some point, right? It's the, it's the, it's the party of the Red Sea. Again, I just want to set this particular story of Jesus on the water, walking on the waters in the midst of the storm, kind of right in the context of this grand exodus we've been talking about the last week or so. Because this is what we see, it's, is that, 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 there's, that he brings us to the, to, the, um, to the brink of our own failure, to the brink of our own destruction. And he shows up right when we need him. He shows us right when we need him. He did it in this marvelous example of the, the parting of the Red Sea. Just, just remind yourself of it, what happened, right? Israel had packed up. They were following Moses out into the wilderness because the night before, God had executed his judgment on the firstborn of all of, Israel, of, all of, uh, of Egypt and those who, of course, didn't believe and trust in God. But as they're journeying out through this, this, uh, this wilderness adventure, out into the desert, you might think, you might say, um, there's a point when Pharaoh uh, kind of gets his wits back about him, and now he's really, really angry, and he says, okay, no, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to have my way here. I'm going to win. I'm going to beat God. And so he goes and sends the best of his army, the full breadth of his army, to go recover his prized slaves in Egypt. And he f- chases them down. And of course, you can imagine for Israel, this, is, this fear and terror has engulfed this little Jewish tribe. Well, it's not so little anymore. It's about two million people as they are moving forward. But they know hot on their heels is, is, is Pharaoh, right? And this is, at the time, one of the most powerful kingdoms on earth. How would this little nomadic tribe face such insurmountable obstacles? And so they're there. And they find themselves on the shore of the Red Sea. And they only have a couple of options. They can take the long haul around the Red Sea, which means probably they're going to get caught up with by Egypt. And here they are in full dread. Like, we're not going to be outrunning these guys, Moses. And they're crying out to the Lord with fear. And even Moses himself cries out to the Lord. And God in his mercy looks at Moses and says, Hey, break camp. Moses, part the seas. I'm with you. And what happens, right? We, we all know the story. They go through the seas, and as soon as the, the Egyptians put their foot into the sea, God collapsed the sea on their enemies. 
but, but, but they don't understand God's grace. They don't understand God's mercy until God has to do what he has to do on the, at the very last second. This is what we see in this text this morning. We see that God sends us into the storms for our good and to show how great his glory actually is. That he never leaves his people wanting. And that this life, as we've sang on uh, several of our songs this morning, it may have its trials, it may have its deaths, it may have its, but, it, but that death has no sting. And that's what we want to be reminded of this, this morning. That as we study Jesus walking on water, we want to be reminded that all the real storm, all the storms we face in life are real. They're not made up. Like we grieve them, we wrestle with them, we're fearful in them. Like to say that we're not is honestly, it's just really to choose to not to be honest. But in, even so, God is near. And God has a watchful eye over his people. It's exactly what we're going to see this morning. And I hope it encourages you. I hope it particularly encourages you in this particular Sunday. And, and if Sarah is watching, and maybe she is, maybe she's not, I hope that this encourages her as well. So there's two major points we're going to consider this morning. One, we're going to talk about what does it mean, like how do we face the storm-tossed realities of this life, and then we will talk about trusting the near and watchful eye of Jesus. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. So let's talk for a few minutes in this text about what does it look like, what does it mean to face the storm-tossed realities of this life. Let's just kind of, again, put our eyes on the text. It's not very many verses. And we're going to look at a lot of other verses this morning, or at least a few other texts that will help us know the context of this. And so when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And this is the, this is the fifth sign. Again, can't emphasize enough that if you really want to get John, you've got to know he has very much a purpose for this particular story here. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, and Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. And we're just going to stop in the middle of verse 19. And after they had rowed for about three or four miles, they, well, we'll just read it all. They saw Jesus walking on the sea, and he was coming near to the boat, and they were afraid. A few things that we just kind of pick up on in this first couple of verses here is it's nightfall, and the disciples, and many of these disciples are well-versed, well-trained fishermen. They are getting into a boat to head across the sea in really the most dangerous time to head across this sea. And uh, they are doing it, and it, it seems that they're doing it alone. Jesus is not with them, at least not presently. Now, to understand the full weight of this, and we'll kind of try to interact with it a little bit throughout our text this morning, Matthew and Mark have the same story, and they give us a few details that may be helpful for us, and we'll kind of talk about those as we and go along. But the scenario seems extremely strange that God, that Jesus has asked his disciples, and we see this in Mark and, and, and Matthew, he has asked his disciples to go get in the boat. Like, remember last week, Jesus departs from this crowd. He goes back to the mountain to have communion with, the, with, his, with his Father in heaven because these people have the wrong understanding about who he is as their true king. And so he separated himself. He needs communion with the Father. And, all, and while he's dismissing the crowd, is what Mark and Matthew tell us, He's telling his disciples, you need to get in a boat and you need to go. Now, there had to be some level of resistance because in Matthew and Mark's telling of this, 
it says that he compelled them or he urged them to go. So there, this tells us, at least signals to us, that these disciples were not exactly on board with Jesus' instructions. You can go look for this yourself in the text, yourself if you want to go back and look at the companion studies, but they, they weren't quite on board with what they were seeing, what they were experiencing. But he compelled them to do so. At some point, they said, okay, you, 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 we're going to do what you tell us to do. And uh, in spite of our reservations, in spite of our knowledge otherwise, really, right? They're experienced fishermen. They're going to get in the boat in the evening. Nightfall is about to happen, and they're going to go across the sea. Now, this should only have been a couple-hour process because it's about six miles across. These are experienced fishermen. Shouldn't have taken them that long. Well, we'll find out later that that's not what unfolded. <laughs> the main key here, though, is the fact that, that Jesus is not with them. And that apparently, again, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this idea more later on, that apparently there is a reason for that. At least in Jesus' mind, there's a reason that he has sent them on ahead of him without him. Because, again, he had withdrew from the crowd and he had kind of went to have communion with the Father. And, again, that's what it says in Matthew and Mark's versions as well, that communion with the Father was his utmost importance to Jesus. In the midst of all these difficulties, he's, he's setting something for us, right? He's, he's showing us something in the middle of all of these things. And, um, and so he's having communion with the Father and he's, he's going to let his disciples go on uh, without him. you got to understand something about when he went to went up on the mount to communion with his father like in scripture the mount represents some level of authority so think about it just simplistically right it's mount sinai is where it's where moses went to meet with god we see this in the mount the temple mount well we know this is the case mount Gennesaret is another example of this it's just, it always represents some level of authority over the region in some way this is where you would go to meet with god this is where we would go to to uh make an offering to him and, and, and to commune with God in some capacity. And so that's what this is representing. It's, it's, it's Jesus going on to the mount with his father, and he's demonstrating his authority by communing with his father and letting what is about to transpire transpire. So just take a deep drink of that. All the things that you and I go through in our life, God is very well, well versed in them, and he's still on the mount with the father, in full authority of everything that's going to transpire in your life. That's important for us to see here in this, in this story. So the storms then are laying in. It gets dark and they're out there by themselves. And it's the, the winds start blowing this little ship around. And, they, and, and, and so much so that like what should have been a pretty short journey ends up being that they're rowing and rowing and rowing. And after many hours, again, I would encourage you to go read Matthew and Mark's version of these things. After rowing for many hours, it says in, in Mark's version that they got to the fourth watch. And that's about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they had set out just before dusk. Dark sets in. And they're rowing with all of their might to get across this thing. And they've managed to make it three to four miles, maybe just a little over halfway. That should just really tell us about the nature of why we need Christ with us in the boat. Okay, don't want to skip ahead too much there, but just take hope in that. 
Now, with all that set up for us as far as this situation, before we get into Jesus going to them on the water, I just want to stop and I want to think about this context, this setup, and try to help us relate to it ourselves. And I have three major ideas that I want us to, to wrestle with this morning. You can, again, you can write these along with this as kind of sub, sub points under this first point of being uh, facing the storm-tossed realities. One is, and this is one that we, we oftentimes don't like, but it's just something that we cannot outrun. There will be storms in life. Seems pretty basic, but let's just call it like it is. There will be storms in this life, and we can do all that we want to to try to outrun them, to, uh, to outmaneuver them, to outsmart uh, this life, but we will not be able to do so. And, and the reason I even just go so simple there is because storms are real. They're an ever-present reality in our lives. Uh, um, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's staggering to me, disheartening to me when I see folks, particularly believers, who tend to minimize storms in their life with this kind of uh, overly victorious perspective. Now listen, we have the victory. In Christ, death does not have any sting any longer. But Christians who don't know how to grieve death don't get, the, don't get the full weight of our mortality. And therefore, I, have a str- I struggle to believe that they get the full weight of the gospel. And so storms are an ever-present reality. My mom, my grandmother used to say this when, I, when we were growing up. She said, and you probably heard this, said, don't trust a skinny cook. <laughs> right? So when you don't trust a skinny cook, why? Because a skinny cook has not actually labored in the kitchen, messed up all the recipes, and tested all their trials to make sure that what they're about to prepare is actually going to be edible on the table. No, but you trust someone who's, you know, got a, got a few pounds on them, right? Because they know. They know the mistakes. They know all the labor. They know all the heart fit, heartaches of, of trying to put something on a plate that they don't, that they, they, they just want to make sure that people enjoy. And, and, and it's kind of the same situation for us here as believers. Like, I don't trust plastic Christianity. I trust well-worn, beaten, scraped up, you know, believers because they've been in the storm. They've been in the battle. They've seen it. They've, they've, they've walked in it. Don't trust a skinny cook. Don't trust a plastic Christian. Life in the storm brings us to the end of ourselves. That's the point. The point is, when God thrusts us into these things, He is, has one primary aim in the middle of it, and that is to show us our finitude. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. We read it this morning in Sunday school, but I want to read it again for you. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. If I can get my page to open up here. Well, it doesn't want to be cooperative. It says, We don't want you to be unaware, Paul talking to this church, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed, beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sins of death. This is how Christians should feel. That life is hard. And so that we were not 
We, we would, I'm sorry, let me read this again. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's why. God sends us into the storms so that we release hold of ourselves into his full and glorious, loving embrace. Because here's the reality. If you're facing your storms without Christ, you will be perpetually exhausted. But when you release your life to Christ, even though you will be battered and torn and messed up, like I can tell you this, you will understand, I will understand that I cannot do anything without my Lord Jesus. Life is exhausting in the storm without Christ. This is why Christ has sent them onto the storm-tossed sea in this little boat in the middle of the night to show them you can't do this by yourself. You can't. And you're foolish if you try to. The second principle that I was wrestling with in this first point is is to, to understand that I need to, you need to learn to identify with people who are in the storm. That's hard for us. Especially if you haven't experienced a lot of storms or maybe not the storms to the same degree that other people are, that we need to look at this. And so I wonder if we can learn from the disciples this morning in their experience. They're on the sea. Like what was going on through their heads? What was going on in their minds that morning? Did they feel abandoned by Jesus? And the question for all of us is the same thing. Have we ever felt alone? Have we ever felt unseen? Have we ever felt abandoned? I bet in some level, some of us have felt that. And I bet that's what these disciples are feeling as well. Storms do that. Storms leave us feeling like this in our lives. But again, where do we turn when we're in the middle of this? Well, Psalm 139 is what was prompted in my heart. I'm just going to read the first 13 verses. Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down, when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you will know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. You, this wondrous, wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is, it is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heavens, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down in the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your, hand, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the lights around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. Even the darkness is not dark to Christ. The night shines like the day, the darkness and the light are alike to you. For it is you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So it's in these moments that we need to just, just really dig in and go, say empathize, whatever, with, these, with sufferers. Because it could very well be we're the ones on the other side of that 
later on in some other time. Learning to learn from sufferers is so important to the Christian life. And listen, I said it in Sunday school, and I'll say it again this morning. I'll say it here. It's, it's important that Christians set the standard for suffering. Because we're the only ones who have a real answer to suffering. And the rest of the world is trying to outrun death. Trying to pretend they can outmaneuver death and suffering, and they can't. And Christ says, death is real because sin and suffering are real. But you as my people can endure to the end because you have a hope that transcends this life of death. Did they ever consider Jesus in the storm? That's another aspect of this. Because if you're like me, and I, I say this, said this before, like, like look, I can get so involved with the macro details of the, 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 the circumstances that I'm finding myself in that the last thing that's on my mind is God. I'm just going to try to continue to fiddle with the knobs, the dials, and maybe I'll get the right sequence of events here and it'll fix the situation, right? But, and that's probably exactly where these disciples are. Remember, they rode for three to four miles for hours and got three miles. They probably didn't even have a, have a thought that Jesus was the answer to their situation. And it's what it says here in this text Right here in verse 19, after they had rode three to four miles, after hours of exhausting work, they see Christ walking on water towards them. They see Jesus coming near to them. See, some of us are working so hard to try to, you know, to, 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 to outmaneuver our difficult circumstances that we won't even lift our head up to see if it's Christ is the better option. Christ is enough for us in the storm. He's enough for us when we face these obstacles. And the last thought I have before we move on to our last point is to be okay wrestling with God's mysterious purposes in the storm. There are things you will not know. And God may never let you know about why he's allowed certain things to transpire in your life. But there is something that must resonate in the life of believers to be okay, even if it's a very painful okay in God's mysterious purposes in these storms. Because here's the reality. Again, go back and read Mark and Matthew's uh, uh, renditions of this. Did Jesus have a mysterious providence ordered in his disciples? And the answer is clearly yes. To send them out there, compel them to do so, even though they kind of thought they knew better, and they probably did, they would never have put themselves in that kind of danger had Jesus not compelled them to do so. And you wouldn't either. And I wouldn't either. Why would Jesus send them into such dangerous waters? Well, that's the question of a lifetime, right? Because many of us have probably questioned those things ourselves or seen other people who have been in a situation, and we don't know the answers to that. And it's really quick, we're really quick over honest, we can question the goodness of God, right? That's that age-old question, if God's so powerful, and if God's so loving, why does he allow his people to suffer? It's a, it's a question that everyone has to wrestle with, but the Christian has a wonderful response to. That when Jesus delays, like he did in this, like he's watching, Mark tells us, he was watching, he saw them being battered, on the sea, 
And then he goes to them. Why did he delay? Well, there's a whole lot of things we can't say about that. But I'm comforted by guys of old who reflect on these things with, for us. John Calvin, God lets his people fall into danger so that they can more plainly see Jesus in their deliverance. They, they wouldn't see Jesus as their deliverer had they not looked up and seen him walking on water towards them. But they had to be in the storm to see him as the one who would deliver them. Or Kent Hughes was helpful. Those who follow Christ will will be called to sail their vessels into the winds of this life. In other words, true Christianity, true Christians will continually face the contrary winds of this life and this world that are contrary to God and His ways. But we do so so that we can better see Jesus. So important to us this morning. That our trials, our tribulations, our afflictions, they're ordered by God, and as painful as it is, and as hard it is, and to wrestle with those deep providences of God, they're ordered by God to bring comfort in Christ. I'm just going to be honest with you. If you don't have a robust understanding of God's sovereignty, I don't, there's no way you can get grasp of suffering. Because if your God is not sovereign, and you're not sovereign... What hope do you have? You don't have none. And that's what Calvin's getting at. That's what Hughes is getting at here. Because as we transition to this this second point, there's a learning to trust in the near and watchful eye of Christ in our lives. That God brings these storms into our life because we know that God's order is such so that we would be comforted by Christ. That we would know that He is near. That we would know that He is watchful over us. It's, but the problem is it takes practice to, to do this. It takes practice for us to, to know and rest in the presence of Christ in our lives. I, I will say this, say this a lot here. I believe God has given us the means of grace called the church for the way, the ability to practice Christ. To sit under his word. To take of the Lord's table so that we practice the presence of Christ because this will be our anchor when the storms and when the winds begin to blow. It just, it's, the, it's just the only way forward for the Christian. And so... Let's transition back to the text here for a second. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near to the boat, and they were afraid. Well, yes. Of course they were afraid. All we need now is a ghost coming towards us. Right? I mean, of course they were afraid. This is the natural byproduct of the storm. They thought they had seen this, aber- this, 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 this ghost coming near to uh, them, and they cried out rightfully in fear, much like Jonah's shipmates when he's running from God. And they don't know what's going on. They're praying to their God. They're praying to that guy's God. They're praying to this guy's God. And they're like, well, maybe your God will work. Maybe it's your God that's put us in this situation, Jonah. And they're crying out to God in the midst of this storm because they know if someone bigger than them does not intervene, this is going down. 
and they're just in utter dismay. And that's the thing, though, right? That when we are not with the Lord, we have no other thing to lean on but our fear and anxiety. If you're not with the Lord, the Lord is not with you, if he's, and you're not sure that he's in the boat with you, of course you have nothing to lean on but Christ. And then the words that come out of Christ's mouth in the midst of their fear receive this. He said to them, in every one of the passages, at least in my version, say the exact same thing. That means there's some significance to it. It is I. Don't be afraid. And what's really fantastic is next week, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And we go into all these I am statements. But before they can receive the I am statements, what do they have to know? It is I. It's me. It's your God. It's your Savior. It's your Redeemer. It is I. Matthew's rendition of this text shows us something even more fascinating and it is man you gotta love peter because what does peter do yeah man he's like if it's you i'm about to step out of the boat jesus i hope you hold me up and he does until he takes his eyes off this this is the response that we know when jesus is Words come to us, it is I, don't be afraid. It promotes responses like Peter's response. It doesn't have it here in this particular story, but it's so important for us to wrestle with that there's something calming, there's something assuring about the voice of Christ, about his word. And the question always has to be like wrestled with in our lives. Are we hearing the voice of Christ? And listen, friends, we're not talking about some mystical experience some audible voice of God. We're talking about the voice of Christ in his word. Are you sitting under it? Are you submitting to it? Are you resting in it? And primarily through the preaching of it? And of course, in your own daily disciplines, I would, I would imagine. It just begs this question that we must wrestle with this morning. And it's only then when they hear his voice, look, look, look at their response. Verse 21, then they were willing to take him on board. They were not willing to come on board when they thought he was a ghost. (laughs) Rightfully so. But when they hear his voice, when they hear his voice, come on, get in the boat with us. We have nothing nothing to cling to. We need you in the boat with us, Jesus. Get in the boat. And and you got to love the instantaneous way in which John transitions the story. And that once they were at where they were heading. Now, I don't know... If that's supposed to be some kind of like, you know, there's supposed to be more in that text. But here's what, I, here's what I do believe that's trying to show us. is One, this is the demonstration of the disciples' faith. And this is really what it all comes down to in Christians' lives. Faith is just saying, I got nothing but you, Jesus. And if you're not in the boat with me, then I have no hope. That, that Jesus in the boat with you is greater than the storm that is consuming you. That's what we see here in this text. And this instantaneous sequence where everything is just like, oh, they're at land, it's daytime, and everything's happy and great. Like, that's not trying to promote some kind of idea that once you get Christ, everything's going to be okay. 
I think rather it points us to the fact that the storm um, is not ending, but rather when Christ is with us, the destination becomes clearer and nearer. When you know where you're going, if you've ever driven in a really, really like heavy thunderstorm, rainstorm, like when I, like the second time I ever drove a car, I got stuck driving back from a basketball game with my brother and my mom was in a car and I was like, they said, okay, once you learn how to drive. And we, I mean, it was so, like you couldn't see the front of the hood, much less anything in front of you. And so we're trying to drive through this mess. But when you know where you're going and you see it more clearly, it's easier to navigate the storm, isn't it? And that's what this whole thing's about. So let's just step back again from this, and then we'll, a couple of points of application that I'd like for us just to wrestle with this morning, and then we'll finish up and, head, and, 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 and enjoy the table together. First thought that I had here is that we have to recognize there's a perverseness that exists in our hearts when we're in the midst of life storms and the first thought we have when Christ is near is fear. When God is near, it's fear. That there's something in us when we're in the midst of the storm, when we are not really relying on Christ. Remember, they, they, were, they, were, they were rowing, they were giving everything they had, and they were not even thinking about Christ in the midst of this because they were trying to handle this situation on their own. And there's just something in us, if we're honest, that just says, that just, this, that, that prevents us from seeing Christ, and we almost see God as adversarial. And when we hear his voice, we realize he's not our adversary, he's our support, he's our confidence, he's our near God. We must recognize these wicked effects that stem from the fall are at play in our lives more than we realize. Second thought I had was that faith in Christ is contingent on hearing his voice. Same idea here, but, but, but taking it and spinning it a little differently. They couldn't see Jesus, and when they saw Jesus before they heard his voice, what? They had nothing but fear for him. They had, their faith couldn't believe in what they saw until what? They heard his voice. Faith is contingent on receiving what God is revealing, what God is saying. Again, God has been revealing himself since the beginning and through his word, and we can faithfully be remind ourselves of that as we sit under God's word each and every week, that staying in his word and staying in the body of Christ is so fundamental to trusting Christ in the storm. Three, storms cannot impede God's purposes. Do I need to say anything else? I don't think so. Again, if you don't have a sovereign view of God, I don't know how you get up out of bed in the morning. I just don't. Four, there's hope that arises out of our lives when we understand the near and watchful eye of Christ over us. 
And that hope manifests itself in courage, it manifests itself in clarity, and it manifests itself in confidence. That's what see the disciples. Courage, clarity, confidence. That's the substance of real hope. You know hope's going to work in your life if these things are beginning, these fruits are beginning to show evidence in your life because you understand uh, the, the near and watchful eye of Christ over you, that he is your ever-present help in times of need. Storms may prevail, but Jesus is master of the storm. Storms may prevail, but Jesus is master of the storm. Let's end by reading another passage of Scripture and ready ourselves for the table. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Our momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Christian, rest in that this morning. Trust that this morning. Minister to one another through that this morning. And may your hope result in courage, clarity, and confidence. God, help us as we now finish this morning as we come to the table and you would minister to your people by your uh, through this table that you have given us that you've instituted for us God and we love you we love you so much Lord that you are a good and gracious God and you never leave your people alone you're always watchful you're always near and you have a purpose for the storm. It's in Christ's name. Amen.